0: for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Wednesday, March 10th, 2010. I, I just can't keep up anymore with the heresy hurricane. I'm into triage mode. I'm convinced I could probably go 4 hours a day and still fall behind. Thank you for tuning in. You are listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro and I am your servant in Jesus Christ and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment. The goal of which is to help you to think biblically to help you to think critically and to compare what people are saying in the name of God to the word of God. Now, listen, just because your church or a church or a mega church pastor or a Christian author or somebody like that can point to some dusty old orthodox doctrinal statement that exists somewhere, either in a filing cabinet or in some rarely visited corridor of their website, doesn't mean that they're actually teaching and proclaiming sound biblical doctrine. It, it, sound d- biblical doctrine, in order for it to be uh, truly applied to a person or a teacher, has to do more than just be some statement that's sitting off in some dark corner. It actually has to be taken out, dusted off, and proclaimed. Okay, So uh, somebody's saying, hey, listen, how dare you? Say that such and such a person isn't teaching the word of God. Look, on their website they've got a quote orthodox statement of belief. So there, you're nothing but a gunky head and a and a heresy hunter and a and a malcontent. And you must be one of those people that likes to argue all the time. That the Bible warned us about, isn't it? That's what you are, aren't you? You know, <laughs> that's not how this goes. Okay, so listen. Biblical doctrine has to be taught and proclaimed. And when teachers aren't doing that and they're off on their own agenda or they're twisting the Bible in order to tell you a story that the Bible doesn't tell you, that's Bible twisting. And I don't care if they claim to be Orthodox or a member of an Orthodox Christian body. They're behaving like a false teacher. And so one of the things we do here is is that we compare what people are saying, you know, because you can say anything you want about God. I mean, that's the way it is in the world today. I mean, You're entitled to your own opinion, but uh, your opinion is not, there is no entitlement uh, for your opinion to be true. Okay. And so we work with, and we work from the assumption that God's word is true. It's not truthy. It's not sort of kind of truth. Like it's true from beginning to end. The whole thing is God's word from beginning to end. And what is revealed in the early opening pages of scripture uh those are t- that uh, that's truth it's true and what's revealed in the closing section of it that's true what's in the middle it's true okay and, uh, so that's what we do here. We take what people say in the name of God to the word of God, and then we apply simple rules. Okay. Now, when, when I talk about simple rules like context, context, and context, I, you, listen, I'm not trying to be a legalist. Okay. It's not like the law, the God's law says context, context, context. No, 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 no. <laughs> no, the idea here is, is that to properly understand God's word, to protect you from being hoodwinked, because there's a lot of hoodwinkers out there. Is that the right way of putting it? Anyway, the the hoodwinkers out there, the uh, the the wolves dressed up like sheep, listen, it's not like they're telling you, listen, go buy Anton LaVey's Satanic Bible, and we're going to open up to Lucifer Chapter 2. And uh, please uh, uh, grab yourself some sulfur and a pitchfork, and what we're going to do now is we're going to worship Satan. that <laughs> The listen, false teachers don't work like that. Now, there might be some guys out there, you know, in the you know, in the world who you know tried to put on some kind of show as, as being satanic or or whatever. Especially in like the rock and roll stage shows or whatever. You know, listen, those guys are like the least of your worries. Least of your worries. Just let me let me reel you in, okay? It's like l- those guys out there, the, all the macabre shows and the weird. Uh, contact lenses and the crazy hairdos and the strange and nasty and ugly to look at piercings and, and and you know all that kind of stuff. Listen, those guys are not the ones you need to worry about. The ones you need to worry about. Let me really and just you know, set the hook and you know, he you know, pull you back here. Come on, back this way. The guys you really need to worry about are the ones who wear the suits, the ties, maybe even vestments. Uh, they have a big smile, nice hair, a beautiful family. And when they open up God's word, they sound like, oh, you know, that they're, they're passionate about it. And then when they dive into God's word, they start picking a verse here and a pick on a the verse there, ripping it out of context, uh, stringing stuff together and telling and weaving a tapestry of things that, when you take their conclusions, they're not valid teachings. I mean, what these guys are doing you is basically, what they're basically doing is scratching itching ears. They've turned Jesus into a commodity or a product, and it's big business for them. Because what's really in it for them is power or money. Sometimes it's the two together, they're building little empires to themselves. And oftentimes, you can always tell a false teacher because... One thing false teachers just love to do, love, 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 love to do, is talk about themselves and their ideas, rather than the doctrines and the teachings laid down in Scripture. They're constantly either pointing you to themselves, or they're pointing worse, they're pointing you to yourself. Okay, and uh, as a result of it, they're not really proclaiming biblical truth. They found, the, they claim they have found an inoffensive way of preaching the gospel i don't i have yet to discover an inoffensive way of preaching the biblical gospel i mean that listen proclaiming the biblical gospel that's a dangerous business it could really mess up your life i in fact i'm telling you if you think christianity is all about uh, you having a you know perfect health perfect wealth white teeth um uh, uh you know a mercedes benz a beamer and a 10000 square foot house that's not what christianity offers uh you know christianity actually offers suffering and pain and um and people mocking you and people really just outright reviling you why well because we 're we 're no better than our Master, our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, and those who like to point out the fact that Jesus had crowds of people following him, and that he had this horrifically uh, popular ministry yeah. <laughs> Read the whole story, okay read the whole story because what happens is is in jesus 's ministry in the early sections of the early portions of it. Yeah. There's a lot of people chasing after him. I mean, there's miracles happening, people being healed. It's this great spectacle in a sense. I mean, and then the the best part about it is Jesus doesn't teach like any of the guys in the synagogue. Jesus actually preaches as one with authority. You know, he, in fact, he preaches as one whose very words are the word of God, kind of strange, you know, weird thing to do. Um, but, what happens is, is just, as Jesus's ministry doesn't pan out to be the thing they expected the Messiah to do. To, you know, kick the Romans out, get rid of all the sinners out there, and set himself up as you know in this righteous and holy kingdom in the middle of Jerusalem, and get rid of all the those blaspheming pagan sinner Romans and you know, like and, uh, what happened is, is that his crowd kind of tapered off, and then he, you know, if you read John chapter six uh which some refer to as Jesus's great church shrinkage sermon. At the end of that, I mean, you know, Jesus says hard things like, if you do not eat my flesh or drink my blood, you have no part in me. And people are going, what? Huh? What are you talking about, Jesus? And at the end, like, you know, just about everybody leaves, and Jesus turns to the disciples and says, are you going to leave too? And Peter says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And so by the end of Jesus' ministry on earth, the crowds that were hailing Jesus, that were following Jesus, the crowds that were excited about Jesus' ministry and were hanging on every word, the crowd at the end of Jesus' ministry appears before Pontius Pilate, and the crowd is yelling of Jesus, Crucify him, crucify him him! See, we're not above our master. And they ultimately hated him. And if you bring his message and not your own, if you bring the true biblical message of Christ and him crucified for our sins and call sinners to repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name and tell them of the forthcoming wrath of God that is soon to be revealed, that people, and I'm telling you, you, you could get yourself in a lot of trouble. In fact, you could even get yourself dead. And don't think that just because you live in the United States that that means that you're immune from this. Because, of course, in the United States of America, we have uh, freedom of religion. I just recently read a story, It was it, three or four weeks ago, about a street preacher in Florida who was shot to death while street preaching. But if you tell people about the the Jesus who wants to be their best friend, the Jesus who wants to give them a purpose, the Jesus who wants them to have their best life now, know yeah, that Jesus—that's not the real Jesus. But that Jesus—he sells. But the biblical Jesus—he don't. Just want to make that clear. All right, today's edition of Fighting for the Faith. All right, looking here at my program notes. <sighs> Talking about big business. Um, there's a—we're going to play for you audio from a news segment. About a, a product that has recently hit the market called Fruit of the Spirit. It's a health drink called Fruit of the Spirit. <sighs> yeah, that's going to be all kinds of fun. Get ready to uh, do a face palm. You know, it's just ridiculous what's happening to Christianity today. This is, I, by the way, if you want to see the video, you can. I have it posted at the Museum of Idolatry. And it's under the Jesus. It's in the Jesus junk wing of the Museum of Idolatry. In fact, that that's one of the most popular wings there at the Museum of Idolatry. And you can visit the Museum of Idolatry at a littleleven A So we'll be playing that. And then this is an interesting story from the Times Online. This is a British, uh, you know, uh, uh, basically a uh, news source in the UK. Having a newspaper in the UK, there we go. Sorry, my brain went blank. Early signs of Alzheimer's, I'm sure. Anyway, um, the headline reads: "The Chief Exorcist, Father Gabriel Amorth, says that the devil is in the Vatican." This is an interesting story, and uh, we'll be reading that. And then today, well, of course, you know it's Wednesday, so we have to talk about Brian McLaren. And I've got a Christian Post story uh, about Brian McLaren that I think is worth uh, you know taking a look at. And uh and then of course we're gonna be listening in to his latest installment from the ooze.tv. By the way, just need to remind you all if you are experiencing ooze, okay, ooze is a bad thing. Uh when you think of ooze, you think of things like pustules, you think of boils and cysts and icky things like that. If you're experiencing spiritual ooze, that's not positive, that's a negative thing. Um, If you're experiencing spiritual ooze, you need some spiritual antibiotics. May I recommend a strong dose and regimen of sound biblical doctrine, focusing in on Christ and him crucified for your sins and uh, repentance uh, on your part for the forgiveness of your sins. Just want to point that out. Um, You know, that's like the thing that'll cure you right up if you're experiencing spiritual ooze. But uh, we'll be listening in on that today. And then our sermon review today is not a sermon. It's a lecture and it's a good one. And, uh, uh, I needed to take a break from the bad ones. My brain is hurting, especially after yesterday. I cannot believe, I still. I, <sighs> I mean, what do you say about the fact that you know a purpose-driven so-called Protestant pastor preaches about the the uh, visions of the so uh, of a Roman Catholic medieval mystic nun. Julian of Norwich, Julian of Sandwich, and, and, and as if that's biblical and that there's something positive that the people in the congregation need to hear from Julian of Norwich and her so-called visions as if that can offer us any insight into the one true God. I just uh, – anyway, so my head was spinning and reeling and I decided that – um, what I thought I would do was just we're going to do a good – sermon review today. It's, it's a lecture by, given by Ligon Duncan entitled Sound Doctrine Essential to Faithful Pastoral Ministry, which I think kind of makes my point. I agree with him. Anyway, so li- with that, we're going to dive into the program proper. And our first story uh, comes to us from the Museum of Idolatry. And this is from the NBC affiliate in, uh, in the Dallas-Fort Worth area on a brand new uh, product from a company in Plano, Texas called Fruit of the Spirit. Here we go.
1: Some health drinks are made to replenish serious athletes. Others
0: are designed to build muscle.
2: Now, a Plano-based company has developed a health drink they say is good for the mind, body, and especially the soul. What?
0: A health drink that's good for the soul?
2: Really? How is that possible? NBC5's Randy McElwain is live with Story. Randy? That's right, Jane. Every product, of course, has a target audience. And for this health drink, fruit of the spirit, the target audience is Christians who are trying to balance their spiritual and physical health. In church, the message most often preached from the pulpit is designed to nourish the soul. That would be God's
0: word. And we're getting less and less of it more and more from more uh, so-called pastors and teachers so, we, in other words, we've got people in the pews starving to death spiritually because their pastors refuse to preach the word.
2: Deanna Naylor's sermon is about feeding your body.
0: They need to be eating fruits. They need to eat, be, be eating vegetables. They need to be exercising. It's a conversation that we believe our churches need to be having with their members. What? You want our churches to have conversations with our members basically giving us the same speech that moms give their kids every day? Eat your fruits and vegetables, Johnny! And don't forget to exercise! Why should our churches be talking about eating more fruits and vegetables?
2: Unbelievable. Fruit of the Spirit, by the way, is the name of the product. Naylor is praying this drink, Fruit of the Spirit, starts a dialogue among Christians about health. When um, we
0: formulated this product, we wanted a story.
2: And this one is from the Bible. The title is from the book of Galatians. The ingredients from Galilee and the Dead Sea.
0: (laughs) The story is from the book of Galatians and the ingredients are from Galilee and the Red Sea. Um oh good night. Hang on a second here. They're showing the uh the the, the product bottle. Uh, let me see if I got this. Whole purple grape puree. Uh, these are the biblical fruits, by the way. Um uh let's see. Something uh, something from whole grapes, whole blueberry puree, whole bilberry puree, Walberry puree, um minerals from the Dead Sea, potassium, magnesium, sodium, calcium manganese copper chromium and zinc i just have a question for you um is potassium from the red sea or the dead sea um more holy and you know and more nourishing to the soul than um potassium from like you know other you know pagan sources you know or less holy um Sites. I mean, I mean, seriously. I, I'm supposed to be excited about that. My soul's gonna get fed because I'm I drinking a drink that has potassium in it from the Dead Sea. Oh man. Um. Let's see here. Whole pomegranate puree, purple grape seed,
2: and the Dead Sea. And most people know of frankincense and myrrh.
0: Mm, biblical herbs include frankincense, myrrh, and uh, whole leaf aloe puree. Uh, it contains jujube, um, whole apple puree, whole fig puree, iodine from the Dead Sea. Oh, man. How's the saying go? There's a sucker born every minute. <sighs> They were carried to baby Jesus by the wise men, but they're natural anti inflammatories. When it comes to. Oh, isn't that great? I mean, it was really wise of the wise men to bring Jesus natural anti inflammatories. I'm sure that really helped him out while he was still the baby Jesus.
2: Buying it, taste will outweigh faith. (laughs) Belinda Williams and Christina Jones are the target demo church ladies. Oh, I loved it. It was good. It tastes like grape juice. But most of all, as Christians, they say the marketing strategy behind Fruit of the Spirit isn't hard to swallow. And if they're talking about your uh, spiritual health, uh, you need to keep your body in health, too. So, yeah. So, there
3: is a connection there. Yeah.
2: We're getting attention and
0: we're... I think the biblical church, the Christian church is just downgraded to just stupid. I, You know, I think that's where we're at at this point. We're getting a platform to be able to talk about the message that we truly want to get out there, which is we, we need to take better care of ourselves. So the message that this so-called Christian company wants to get out there is not the message of Christ and him crucified for our sins, Uh, But the uh, the message of of this elixir, uh, a bottle of health uh, entitled "Fruit of the Spirit" that contains minerals and herbs from the Dead Sea, that's supposed to not only help you take care of your body, but it will feed your soul. Oh my goodness!
2: I am just. Now, the big-picture goal for, for Fruit of the Spirit is to actually be on the shelves of faith-based stores like Mardell's. But right now, you can only buy the product actually online. They do expect to start a big media blitz within Christian radio and television in the upcoming days. Reporting live in Frisco, Randy Mack. Well, there you go.
0: Um, wow. Sucker born every minute. Unbelievable. What has happened to Christianity? It's this is just un. Yeah, uh, I don't even know what to say. Switching gears here. From the Times Online headline reads: Chief Exorcist Father Gabriel Amorth says, "Devil is in the Vatican." Now. Don't get excited. I don't think he's saying that he thinks that uh, Pope Benedict is the Antichrist. Let's not jump to those conclusions. Uh, however, let me read the piece here. Uh, chief ex, uh, let's see, sex abuse scandals in the Roman Catholic Church are proof that the, quote, devil is in the work, is at work inside the Vatican, according to the Holy See's chief exorcist. Okay, now, I, listen, I I completely agree that, Sex abuse scandals, especially pedophilia, sex abuse scandals. That this, these stories are horrific. Okay, but let's uh, let's wait a second here on blaming it on the devil. Uh, the reason I say that is, because is if we were to take the devil and lock him up, and uh, and just make it so that he was incapable of doing anything, um, having any influence upon humanity whatsoever. Uh, then what we would find is, is that humanity still remains sinful and commits very terrible and egregious sins. Why? Because by nature we are all sinners. Okay? Just want to make sure we got that clear. Now, I do agree, though, that this is just terrible, egregious, and on some level, satanic. Father Gabriel Amorth, who is 85, who has been the Vatican's chief exorcist for 25 years and says he has dealt with 70,000 cases of demonic possession, good night, said that the consequences of satanic infiltration included power struggles at the Vatican as well as cardinals who do not believe in Jesus and bishops who are linked to the... Uh, who are linked to the demon. Okay, and by the way, this is nothing new. I mean, going, if you know your Reformation history, uh, then you'll also know that it's not just cardinals in, in the history of the Roman Catholic Church who've been, quote, unbelieving. Uh, I think you can make the case that there were plenty of popes that filled that bill as well. By the way, does this make us, does this make Protestants better than them? No, not even close. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the uh, Protestants were in full-blown apostasy too. Um, yeah, <laughs> proof positive. Look at Brian McLaren, Tony Jones, Doug Paget. Look what's happening in the seeker-driven movement. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, continued. Uh, he added, "When one speaks of the smoke of Satan, a phrase coined by Pope Paul the, uh, VI in 1972, in the holy rooms, it, it it is all true, including these latest stories of violence and pedophilia." He claims that another example of satanic behavior was the Vatican cover-up over the deaths in 1998 of Alo Esterman, the then commander of the Swiss Guard, his wife and Corporal uh, Cedric Tornay, a Swiss Guard, who were all found shot dead. They covered up everything immediately, he said. Here, here one sees the rot. Wow, I wasn't even aware of that particular story. I'll have to do some research on that one. A remarkably swift Vatican investigation concluded that Corporal Tornay had shot the commander and his wife and then turned his gun on himself after being passed over for a medal. However, Tornay's relatives have challenged this. Uh, There have been unconfirmed reports of a homosexual background to the tragedy and the involvement of a fourth person who was never identified. Father Amorth, who has just published Memoirs of an Exorcist, a series of interviews with the, Vatican, uh, with the Vatican journalist Marco Tossati, said that the attempt on the life of Pope John Paul II in 1981 had been the work of the devil, as had uh, had an incident last Christmas when a mentally disturbed woman threw herself at Pope Benedict XVI at the start of midnight mass, pulling him to the ground. Father Jose Antonio Fortea Cur, uh, Cucuru, a Roman-based exorcist, said that Father Amorth had, quote, gone well beyond the evidence in claiming that Satan had infiltrated the Vatican corridors. Well, see, by the way, by the standards of the Inquisition, I mean, we would just have to come to the conclusion by the fact that uh, the fact that uh, uh, Father José Antonio Fortea Cucurro is denying these claims that Satan is involved, that that proves that Satan is involved. I mean, isn't that how the Inquisition works? Sorry. (laughs) Uh, I think of many a person who was uh, who had underwent a trial by ordeal in church history. Okay, cardinals might well be might be better or worse, but all have upright intentions and seek the glory of God. Oh, I see. Yeah, see, if you have an upright intention and you seek the glory of God, then pff, that automatically means you're okay. Okay, got it. All right. He said some Vatican officials were more pious than others, but from there to affirm that some cardinals are members of satanic sects is an unacceptable distance. Well, he did say there were unbelieving cardinals. Okay. Uh, Father Amarth told La Republica that the devil was pure spirit, invisible, but he manifests himself with blasphemies and afflictions in the person he possesses. He can remain hidden or speak in different languages, transform himself, or appear to be agreeable, at times make fun of me. And this is a guy who has apparently done 70,000 exorcisms. I quote, uh, no, sorry. He said it sometimes took six or seven of his assistants to hold down a possessed person. Those possessed often yelled and screamed and spat out nails or pieces of glass, which he kept in a bag. Anything can come out of their mouths. Finger-length pieces of iron have also, but also rose petals. He said that he, that's frightening. He said that he hoped every diocese would eventually have a resident exorcist. Under church canon law, any priest can perform exorcisms but in practice, they are carried out by a f- chosen few trained in the riots. Father Amorth was ordained in 1954 and became an official exorcist in 1986. In the past, he has suggested that Adolf Hitler, Joseph Stalin, were possessed by the devil. By the way, um, it's funny that he would say that. Uh, recently just saw a, uh, a History Channel um, special called uh, World War II in HD. And uh, they've got color footage that's like never been seen on television before. That they that they were able to bring into television quality at HD level, you know, 1080p. And um, wow, I gotta tell you, some of the footage of Hitler. When you look into his eyes, it's like, woohoo! There's like nobody home there, man. I'm you know, it's like looking into the eyes of a shark. You know, if that's one guy that it wouldn't surprise me if, after you know everything said and done, we find out that he actually was possessed. And when you see some of the some of this the the film footage of him in HD, you look at him and you go, I, "I'm not looking at a human being." You know, but anyway, um, let's see here. Um, I I digress. Um, okay, he he was among Vatican officials who warned that J.K. Rowling's Harry Potter novels must uh, made a false distinction between black and white magic. He approves, however, of the 1973 film The Exorcist, which, although exaggerated, offered a substantially exact picture of possession. In 2001, he objected to the introduction of a new version of the exorcism, right, complaining that it dropped centuries-old prayers and was a, quote, blunt sword about which exorcists themselves had not been consulted. The Vatican said that later that he and other exorcists could continue to the. Con- continued to use the old ritual he is the president of the honor of the association of exorcists fascinating story interesting story um this is a man who obviously thinks about and confronts evil on a regular basis okay now here's the deal if we limit our understanding of evil to uh, atrocities and uh, pedophilia, sex scandals, murders, and things like that. I think we're missing the bigger picture here, okay? Um, Because Satan's biggest favorite, most favoritist uh, tactic, if you would, is deception. He's the, quote, father of lies. That's what our Lord Jesus Christ calls him, okay? The father of lies. And so one of the things we have to be watching out for is false doctrine. That being the case, I think... uh, this uh, exorcist gentleman has got himself a problem because he's part of a church organization that has anathematized the gospel and teaches false doctrine. Something to consider. All right, we're up on our first break. If you would like to uh, send me uh, any feedback, you can do so. I welcome it. My email address is talkback at com. Or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there is Pyre Christian. We'll be right back. Christianity. We need to rediscover it. You're listening to Fighting for the
2: Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian
1: Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Nobody expects a purpose-driven inquisition. Amongst our weaponry are such diverse elements as purpose, vision, ruthless relevance, and almost fanatical devotion to Rick Warren and nice Hawaiian gentle. Damn. I can't say it. You'll have to say it.
3: Uh, what?
1: You'll have to say what the bit about our chief weapons are.
3: Uh, I I couldn't do
0: that. <clears throat> I didn't expect a kind of purpose-driven inquisition. Uh, nobody uh,
3: expects. Uh, expects no. Nobody expects the um purpose-driven inquisition. Uh, I, I know, I know. Nobody expects the purpose-driven inquisition. In fact, those who our do. Our chief
1: ex- weapons are.
3: Our chief weapons are um purpose. Uh, uh, vision Okay, and- okay, stop,
1: stop that, stop that. Uh, our chief weapons are purpose. blah, 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 blah. Youth Pastor Rick, read the charges. Dude, you're like, hereby charged with being divisive and not following our program? That's enough! Now, how do you plead?
3: Well,
0: we're
1: innocent. Ha! 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 We'll soon take your mind about that!
0: spring and summer travel seasons are just around the corner and the last thing you want to do is pay more for your airfare hotel and rental car than you need to that's why pirate christian radio is proud to have cheap o air as one of our featured advertisers cheapo air has over 18 million flight deals low airfare guarantees and 85,000 negotiated hotel rates around the globe and if you visit our website piratechristianradio.com/cheap we have a promo code that will save you an additional $10 off of cheapo airs already low prices so visit piratechristianradio.com/cheap write down the promo code click on the web banner and book your spring or summer travel today and remember a portion of your purchase at cheapo air will go to support pirate christian radio that web address again is piratechristianradio.com forward slash chief. Thank you for your support. Warning: morning. This program could cause you to become supremely dissatisfied with your church, especially if your pastor's not giving you the goods. What are the goods? It's the gospel, the good news of Christ and him crucified for your sins. Or right, I need to remind you all, Fighting for the Faith is a listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you. You can partner with us financially by visiting our website, www.fightingforthefaith.com, and when you get there, we have two friendly yellow buttons there. One says "Join Our Crew," and the other says "Donate." Uh, When you click on the "Join Our Crew" button, what you're doing is you are becoming a member of our pirate crew. Now, it sounds ominous. It sounds, well, kind of different. Uh, The idea here is is that uh, when you join our crew, what you're basically signing up for is to have $6.95 a month. That's it. Nothing more than that. Uh, $6.95 a month automatically taken from your account, well, given from your account, if you would, uh, to uh, Fighting for the Faith so that we can continue to uh, meet our bills. Our goal is to get 1,000 of our listeners to join our crew And once we achieve that mark, then that will assure us that at least on a month-to-month basis, we're able to pay our bills. Kind of important because paying your bills is one of the prerequisite things in order to continue to operate as a business. Just something I've noticed. And so uh, our goal is to get to 1,000. We're not quite to 60% yet, but we're approaching it. So uh, we still have a ways to go. If you haven't joined the Fighting for the Faith Pirate Christian Radio crew, you should. Plus... Uh, as our way of saying thank you to those who have joined our crew, you get access to our Pirate Cove. It's a growing treasure trove of theological resources designed to help you go deeper in God's Word, it's Christ-centered theology and doctrine, just all around good stuff. And of course, if you would like to uh, set the amount of money that you would like to uh, give to uh, Fighting for the Faith, you can click on our Donate button. It allows you to fill in the uh, the amount that you would like to give uh, and it's all secured online, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. All right, next story here. Brian McLaren proposes a new kind of Christianity. This one is a story written by Lillian Kwan from the Christian Post, and it's a interesting story. I'm beginning to think that uh, people are, are throwing McLaren under the bus and realizing, dude, this guy's a heretic. Well, he is. Reread <clears throat> the Christian faith must be born again, says one prominent pastor. Really, I, I don't think so. I I read the the Epistle of Jude, and I read about the faith once delivered to the saints. And if he was really teaching some kind of vintage, true Christianity, then why doesn't it look anything like the Christianity proclaimed by the apostles? Why does it not sound like anything remotely close to the Christianity proclaimed by the Apostolic Church fathers? And by the way, I'm working on a new translation of Polycarp's Epistle to the uh, to the Philippians. Oh, good night. I mean, when you when the, I'm ready to publish this, you're gonna see that uh, Polycarp and Brian McLaren live on two completely different spiritual planets. Uh, Polycarp is an apostle of the uh, disciple. Sorry, a disciple of the apostle John. And uh, and he quote and Polycarp quotes the Apostle Paul like he's going out of style I and mean, it kind of tells you something about uh, John's ministry uh, and uh, the stuff that uh, Polycarp says completely flies in the face of the new kind of Christianity that um, McLaren's promoting, which basically shows that not only is it, quote, a new kind, it, it's like a false kind. There is there, uh, anyway, I'm waxing eloquent. Uh, And anyway, McLaren says, and to be born again, Christians must be uh, unlocked from a prison of long held assumptions and have the freedom to ask honest questions. Brian McLaren indicates in his newest book, A New Kind of Christianity. He's not advocating for a new set of beliefs, he says, but rather a new way of believing. That's just sophistry. Uh, the yeah Because his new way of believing excludes the doctrine of hell, believes in universalism, uh, d- denies that Christ is going to return in glory to judge the living and the dead, denies the Bible is authoritative. You know, all kinds of problems here. Uh, this new kind of, – okay, hang on a second here. Um, okay, uh, the proposal doesn't seem like anything new for those familiar with McLaren who, who presented a new kind of Christian nine years ago. But some say his latest book paints a more vivid picture of the emergent church pastor and his beliefs. Um, Yeah, quote, this new book is easily the clearest presentation of McLaren's theology to date. Reformed pastor Kevin DeYoung recently wrote on his blog. McLaren grew up in a conservative evangelical home and became a committed disciple to his te- in his teen years. He considered going into the Episcopal ministry, but became an English teacher instead determined that he would quote do more good for the spiritual cause outside of the institutional church than inside of it without having planned it, He later became a full-time pastor leading a group of people that he had been meeting at his home uh, that had been meeting at his home every week today. After serving as a pastor for more than 30 years, he often sees Uh, picketers and leaflets labeling him as dangerous, controversial, and unbiblical. And those leaflets are absolutely correct. When he visits churches around the world to speak, he wonders, how did a mild-mannered guy like me get into such trouble? Because you deny the historic Christian faith, Brian. I mean, seriously, are you that naive? Anyway, we continue. He feels it may uh, partly be because he's asking questions. No, it's because you're destroying Christianity theological ones that are by and large answered for most evangelical Christian leaders. Quote, they're very satisfied with their theology, as it is, McLaren told the Christian Post, but he's not. Hence the quest for a new kind of Christianity. I don't like the the theological answers you've come up with, and I don't like what your Bible says, so I'm just going to come up with my own new kind of Christianity. Quote, some people seem to believe that all of those theological interpretations are easy and clear and that their church or denomination has nailed them down or figured them out. And I just don't think that it's that simple, McLaren said. I think we're in a constant struggle to understand the truths more deeply than we have. To, uh, and we have to be involved in ongoing, unending, unending repentance, where we are willing to say the things that we felt were true. Maybe we're only partially so, or so we have more to learn that to me, that's part of what's being a disciple is. McLaren once read the Bible through a traditional pair of lenses uh, but when he began to struggle with questions, he started to view the scriptures with fresh eyes. <laughs> yeah, fresh eyes. So, oh, wow. See, McLaren, he's got fresh eyes. Well, we should listen to him then. You know, Fresh eyes. <clears throat> yeah, his, the problem is, is that his new Christianity isn't fresh at all. It's just stinking, rotting old heresy. Uh, But he insists he hasn't moved away from certain Christian truths such as the deity of Christ and the authority of Scripture. Well, that's a lie, too. Uh, Yeah, you don't believe in the authority of Scripture at all. Uh, you've redefined that term, so to speak. But he does have some qualms over the inerrancy of Scripture. Oh, yeah. You see, the word inerrancy never occurs in the Bible, and my con- neither does the doctrine of the, the word Trinity, by the way. And my concern with inerrancy is that it brings into our discussion about the Bible a set of philosophical assumptions that aren't really necessary and actually can be unhelpful and counterproductive. Well, unhelpful and counterproductive if your goal is to basically have ordained uh, unrepentant homosexuals in your congregation— and he commented to the you know he commented the Christian Post he believes a lot of Christians read the Bible as a legal constitution uh yeah, and the funny thing is is that the uh, the Christian Church, even before there was a such thing known as the u s Constitution, believed the Bible to be authoritative and binding and truthful in regard and that there's a such thing as heretics and people who've shipwrecked other people's faiths, read the epistles by the way, or if you would read the uh, read the prophets. I mean, this is exactly the same sort of just complete sophistry and uh, chicanery that the uh, the false prophets and the the pluralists of uh, of uh, in the time of the prophets were engaging before uh, Judah uh, well was sent into exile, right? I mean, what was the condition of Solomon's temple prior to uh, the exile into Babylon? Well, they they set up. Grottos to all kinds of false deities, Molech, Asherah, Baal—all in Solomon's Temple. They were pluralists. They were universalists. The false prophets were saying peace, peace, and they were lying. McLaren is cut from the same cloth as those guys. We continue. Okay, many religious—the uh, uh, religious setting that there are no checks and balances and challenging an authority uh, figure's interpretation can lead to excommunication. He writes in his book. At least good constitutions can be amended. Oh, that's that's what we need to do. We just need to amend the Bible. The Bible, he argues, is more like an inspired library, one that preserves, presents, and inspires an ongoing vigorous conversation with and about God, a living and vital civil argument into which we are all invited and through which God is revealed. Perhaps his main argument against traditional Christianity is what he calls the Greco-Roman narrative or the unspoken story that that many Christians hold to. It's not a Greco-Roman narrative, by the way. That's just absolute malarkey. It consists of six lines, Eden, fall, condemnation, salvation, heaven, and hell and damnation. It's the six-line narrative that he feels serves as the glasses by which many Christians see everything with. See, his new narrative, by the way, is that we didn't fall. We ascended. Humanity ascended. We went from hunter-gatherers all the way to city dwellers to empire builders. See, we went up, we're not down. And we're continuing to go up. Apparently, he thinks that there's something new on the horizon beyond empire. I hate to see what that's going to be. McLaren questions the entire na- narrative, including the fall and original sin and hell. He explained to the Christian Post that he struggles with the idea that the humanity has become detestable to God. And it's only the people who become Christians that God can truly love. And that their being loved by God through, uh, through just being God's creatures is somehow destroyed by original sin. Has he read the Bible, the Johannine passages, that uh, those who believe in him uh, have the right to become children of God and everyone who doesn't believe is still under God's wrath? I mean, that's pretty clear. <clears throat> Along with the idea of original sin is the idea that the problem of sin is primarily a legal problem. In other words, the primary category of sin is a category of guilt and condemnation. Uh yeah, fall and corruption too. I mean it's more than just that. Even more disturbing to McLaren is where the narrative leads to some leads to for some hell. That six nine narrative I talk about in the book as interpreted by many people suggests that every person who does not say the sinner's prayer actually that's not what the Bible says. Uh, the sinner's prayer is not the your ticket in. Uh personally accept Jesus as their savior will spend eternity, which means absolutely forever, without ever any abatement or termination in conscious torment, he explains. So every second will be like the, like they're burning in fire every second. They'll be in absolute agony every second. And a lot of us find that it is not something that you can just lightly swallow. And yet it is so clearly taught by Jesus himself. Kind of odd there. For example. We're so sad that 230,000 people were killed in a terrible earthquake in Haiti, but that involved them suffering for a few minutes and dying. But this is every single person who's ever lived and uh, and ever will live who isn't part of one group. Yeah, that's right. You you ever read Jesus' story of the sheep and the goats? Sheep on the one side, goats on the left. And he says to the goats, uh, depart into eternal punishment. This is Jesus' words, not mine. Jesus's. Read it. It's Matthew 25. Read it. Look it up. Parable. Uh, not, this is the sheep and the goat judgment. Okay. Anyway, we continue. Um, let's see. But this ver- this is every single person who's ever lived, who will ever live, a part of one group. He continued. You think about someone who went through the Holocaust. They were so horribly treated by the Nazis, and then the Nazis kill them, and then they go to something even worse just because they weren't Christians? Notice that his entire argument is based upon his ideas of what's right and wrong, not what's revealed in God's word. Yeah, Brian, I know it sounds unfair and unjust, but I assure you God's word makes it clear that God is neither unfair nor is he unjust. None of us are going to be able to point a bony finger at Jesus Christ or God and say, you can't do that. That's not fair. That's not just. That's just reprehensible of you, God. Each and every one of us, me and you included, have all earned hell. It doesn't matter if we're part of what a particular ethnic group. It doesn't matter what our circumstances are in this life. Each and every one of us has earned that. Christ calls us to repentance and the forgiveness of our sins in Jesus' name. Those who believe according to Scripture are adopted into God's family through what Christ has done. Their sins are forgiven. Those who persist in unbelief and unrepentance, Christ died for them, but no, they're, they want to persist in that. They don't want to believe. Well, they can get what they deserve then. God is offering everybody something they don't deserve. Complete mercy and pardon. We continue. Okay, let's see here. Um, So many of us Christians are asking the question, and we're just not asking because we don't want to believe. We're asking because we get a vision of God and Jesus that just doesn't seem to match that. Really, how is it possible that you can make such a statement when Jesus so clearly teaches it? (sighs) Okay, hang on a second here. Need to do some biblical work. Hang on, hang on. Um. Let's see here. Um, Let's just kind of ask a couple questions here of Jesus. Let's go to the red letters. For those of you who have your Bibles, turn with me, if you would, to Luke um, chapter 13. Luke chapter 13. Um, We're going to be looking at, hang on a second here, Luke 13. We're going to be looking at, I can't believe I wrote that. Hang on a second here. Uh, There we go. Luke chapter 13. We're going to be looking at verse 22. Okay. Ready? Okay. Okay. From the gospels, we read Jesus went on his way through the towns and villages teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? Okay. Will those who are saved be few? Now I want to I want you to pay close attention. Jesus doesn't exactly answer this question the the way it's asked. He kind of reframes it. But listen carefully to what he does say. Strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door saying, Lord, open to us. Then he will answer you, I do not know where you come from. Then you will begin to say, well, we ate and drank in your presence and we taught and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I I tell you, I I don't know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. When you see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves will be cast out. And people will come from the east and the west, from the north, and recline at the table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some who are last will be first, and some who are first will be last. frightening words isn't it jesus excluding people saying depart from me you eat workers of evil i never knew you how do how, immediately go well what's the narrow gate i mean these emergent guys are preaching this broad road this god's ever expanding concentric circles of inclusiveness thank you danielle schroyer um but Jesus doesn't teach that. Let me let me give you another passage here. Hang on a second here. Um, uh, Luke chapter nineteen. We're going to start at verse twelve. So if if you have your Bible, let's flip over to Luke chapter nineteen. Take a look at what the passage says. Luke chapter nineteen. We well, well, tell you what. For the sake of continuity, we'll start at verse eleven. Okay, read and listen to this. Now, as they heard these things, Jesus proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. All right. And he said, therefore, this is Jesus talking. A noble noble man went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas and said to them, Engage in business in my name until I come. But his citizens hated him. And they sent a delegation after him saying, we don't want this man to reign over us. By the way, who is the um, who do you think the guy who's the king is referring to here? The guy who has the kingdom, the guy who's going to reign over these people, that would be Jesus. Okay, just want to make sure you get you get the fact that Jesus is the guy that he's referring to himself here as the nobleman who went to a far country to receive a kingdom. And when did Jesus go to a far country to receive a kingdom? Answer, when Jesus ascended into heaven, think about it this way. And he's coming back, by the way. And he's told all of us to engage in business in his name. In the name of the one true king, the one who's coming back to reign. And so, but the citizens hated him and they sent a delegation after him. We don't want this man to reign over us. And when he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him that he might know... What they had gained by doing business. The first came before him saying, Lord, your mina has made 10 more minas. And he said to him, well done, good, good servant, because you have been faithful in a very little. You shall have authority over 10 cities. And the second came saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas." And he said to him, and you are to be over five cities. And another came saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief, for I was afraid of you because you are a severe man and you you take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. And he said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank and at my coming I might have collected it with interest and he said to those who stood by take the mina from him and give it to the one who has 10 minas and they said to him lord he has 10 minas i tell you i tell you that everyone who has more will be given but from the one who has not even what he has will be taken away but as for those These enemies of mine, who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. That's Jesus talking. That's not Roseboro. I'm not even interpreting it for you. Just reading it. What do you think? You think Jesus is a universalist? You think he might exclude some people? Just, you know, know, just doing a little biblical work here, you know, comparing the ravings of the madman, Brian McLaren. He's a a spiritual madman. That's really what he is. I mean, this is all just complete pipe dreams on his part. Okay. Anyway, uh, we continue with the story. Not surprising, McLaren's new kind of Christianity has drawn many critics, some of whom say the proposed new Christianity isn't new at all. Yep. Uh, quote, McLaren's Christianity is not new and certainly not improved. A young pastor of University Reformed Church in East Lansing, Michigan, wrote in a review, I don't believe you can even call it Christianity. It's liberalism dressed up for the 21st century. That's right. It's basically the liberal pig dressed up in 21st century lipstick. Citing, the 20th, century theo- uh, t- citing 20th century theology, DeYoung and McLaren fits the description of a liberal like a glove. Liberals, he cites, believe doctrines need to be developed to meet the needs of contemporary thought emphasize the need to reconstruct traditional beliefs and reject the authority of, of the tradition and church hierarchy, focus on practical and ethical dimensions of Christianity, seek to base theology on something other than the absolute authority of the Bible, and drift toward divine eminence at the expense of transcendence. De is spot on here. Quote, the message of McLarenism is pretty simple. God is love and wants everyone to be kind and inclusive and care for the poor and the environment. That's how he defines the kingdom. The reform pastor said, "While that message itself isn't wrong, McLarenism leaves out a lot." De Young noted, including creation, fall, redemption, a definite future, the doctrine of justification, and the unchanging apostolic deposit of truth. Aware that not everyone would like his proposals, McLaren said that ultimately he just wants Christians to understand the questions that are being raised by people all over the world and to discuss them, you know, in conversation. <sighs> ridiculous absolutely ridiculous i hope that quote i hope that what this will lead to goes beyond labeling and name calling and that it will lead to substantial and constructive conversation uh, beyond labeling and name calling talking about na- labeling and name calling uh yeah y'all ever read matthew 23 uh, <laughs> uh, by the way another section in the uh red letters um Matthew 23, if you have your Bible, please flip there. We're going to start at verse 1, and you'll notice if you have a red-letter edition of the Bible, that what I'm about to read to you is Jesus speaking. Jesus says, ready? Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, quote, The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So practice and observe whatever they tell you, but do not do what they do. For they preach, but they do not practice. Now that's an odd statement, don't you think? The Pharisees preach but don't practice. We continue, they tie up heavy burdens hard to bear and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their flaccataries broad and their fringes long, and they love the place of honor at the feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. Uh, But you're not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher and you are all brothers and call no man your father on earth. For you have one Father who is in heaven, neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, Christ. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Now get this. <clears throat> Pay attention here. Remember, we're kind of reacting to uh, McLaren says, I hope that what this will lead to goes beyond labeling and name-calling. Let's take a look at Jesus. Was Jesus a labeler and a name caller? Let's take a look. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites! For you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you neither enter yourselves, nor allow those who would enter in to go uh, enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites! For you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte, and when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child as hell, of hell as yourselves. Woe to you blind guides who say, if anyone swears by the temple, it's nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he's bound by his oath. You blind fools. For whichever, for which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred. And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it's nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that's on the altar, he's bound by his oath. You blind men. For which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So whoever swears by the altar swears by it and everything that's on it. Whoever swears by this temple swears by it and him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. Apparently Jesus wasn't much in a conversational mood here. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you... First clean the inside of the cup and the plate, and then the outside may also be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs, which are outwardly, they appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanliness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness." Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, if well we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. And thus you witness against yourselves that you are the sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your fathers, you serpents, you brood of vipers. You, How are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Well, so much for Jesus being into conversation and not a name-caller. Whitewashed tombs, brood of vipers, um, hypocrites. We continue. But Michael E. Whitmer, associate professor of systematic and historical theology at Grand Rapids Theological Seminary, doesn't see a need for conversation. Quote, the book ended in conversation that had never really begun he wrote in a review there seems to be a little uh, uh, to be little point in discussing this further but perhaps both sides can agree on this we have, irrecon- we have irreconcilably different views of scripture god jesus sin and salvation and as such it is impossible to unite in a common understanding of the gospel We are better off going our separate ways, convinced that the other is irremediably wrong and praying that God would bring the other to repentance and his great salvation, that we may not agree on much of anything, but at least we know where we are. Nevertheless, Brian McLaren says that he's trying to be true to the Bible. No, he's not. And he understands the Christian life to be a continual journey with continual learning. Whatever. And he says he'll never finish his quest to be the person that God wants me to be in his life. And the quest for the Christian faith to become all that God intends to be, I don't think we'll ever be able to say we've ever arrived, he said. In fact, the day that we say we've arrived is possibly one of the most dangerous days of all. Yeah, there you go. Well, we've run a little bit long. We'd love to get your feedback. I thought it was a pretty good story. But uh, the Jesus that uh, McLaren promotes is not the historic biblical Jesus. The historic biblical Jesus would have some pretty strong words to say of Brian McLaren. He's a false teacher and a blind guide, and he's a hypocrite. He's a heretic. He's a dangerous man. He does not teach historic biblical Christianity. He's invented his own, and it's the ravings of a man gone spiritually mad. Pray for him. Pray that God would grant him forgiveness and repentance for his false doctrine. We'll do the ooze uh, uh, video. Uh, I don't know. We might get to it tomorrow. We'll do the, the ooze video on a different day here. I, I've run long and kind of... I don't want to talk about McLaren anymore today. <laughs> if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter, my name there, Pyre Christian. We'll be right back.
1: Sisyoprified religiosity won't save you. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. This is the air I breathe This is the air I breathe I've had enough of this sissy, pansy, for photo-written music you have the audacity to call worship. Men, put this entire girly praise band in the boo box. Let's wheel in the organ and get some real worship music underway. Ye be listening to Pirate Christian Radio.
0: Hi, Chris Rosebrough here to talk to you about auto insurance. As the father of two teenage drivers, I know how expensive auto insurance can be. But as expensive as auto insurance is, it's nothing compared to the cost of not having it when you need it. That's why I'm excited to have Allstate Insurance as one of Pirate Christian Radio's featured advertisers. Did you know that drivers who switched to Allstate saved an average of $396 per year compared to what they were paying other companies? Now, I don't know about you, but I think $396 is a lot of money in these tough economic times. Why don't you give Allstate a call and see how much they can save you. You can reach them toll-free at 877-246-1511. Again, that's 877-246-1511. The good folks at Allstate will be happy to give you a free quote over the phone. And remember, you're in good hands with Allstate. The spring and summer travel seasons are just around the corner, and the last thing you want to do is pay more for your airfare, hotel, and rental car than you need to. That's why Pirate Christian Radio is proud to have Cheapo Air as one of our featured advertisers. Cheapo Air has over 18 million flight deals, low airfare guarantees, and 85 thousand negotiated hotel rates around the globe. And if you visit our website That web address, again, is piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Thank you for your support. All right, we're back. Time for a sermon review, and I don't know about you guys, but... I need to hear something good. Sometimes people ask me, how do you wade through all those bad sermons and just not go crazy? I just don't think about it. I, you know, but when there's just times when I say enough, enough, enough. I need something good. I need something good. So we'll try something good out. Let's cue it up. Ah, the ukulele version. <laughs> the good, the bad, the ugly. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We are an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. And from time to time, we even offer things that aren't even really sermons. This is a lecture, if you would, presented by Ligon Duncan. Name of the, the uh, lecture is Sound Doctrine, Essential to Faithful Pastoral Ministry. This is my kind of lecture. Right on. Listen, you can't teach biblical Christianity by teaching false doctrine. You can't teach biblical Christianity by twisting God's word and giving pagans felt needs self-help seminars. Faithful pastoral ministry requires according to the Bible that you teach, proclaim, defend sound biblical doctrine and refute and rebuke those who contradict it. If you don't want to do that, you don't have any business being in the ministry. Does that sound a little harsh? It's true. Look at the biblical requirements. Read 1 Timothy. Read 2 Timothy. Read Titus. They're called pastoral epistles for a reason. Part of the job is building up. Part of the job is tearing down. All of it requires proclaiming repentance and the forgiveness of sins. You don't get to monkey with, mess with, twist, change, alter, edit, or soften the message. (sighs) Sorry, do it sound like I'm preaching? Hang on, let me kill this music here. It's... Anyway, so rather than me uh, continuing with that little lecture here, um, here <laughs> here is Ligon Duncan from the 2008 Together for the Gospel uh, conference on, <clears throat> the, again, Sound Doctrine Essential to Faithful Pastoral Ministry.
3: If you have your Bibles, brothers and sisters, if you would open them up to John chapter 17, it's my privilege today to address you on the subject of Sound Doctrine, which is essential to faithful pastoral ministry. Now, they've, they've cut out my rather longer puritanical title from the bulletin. The subtitle of this paper is A Joyful Defense and Declaration of the Necessity and Practicality of Systematic Theology for the Life and Ministry of the Church. Now, if I were a real Puritan... <laughs>
0: Uh, There isn't an emergent in the world that would agree with that title.
3: The next words would be, that being, and then there would be a one-page-long description which would give the whole outline of the thesis of the work, but I'm just going to stick with that as my subtitle. We live and minister in an anti-doctrinal age, or at least an age that thinks that it's anti-doctrinal. We live and minister in an age which is anti-theological, or at least it claims to be anti-theological. And so we need to look to the scriptures to learn how doctrine informs, is necessary to, is essential for, faithful pastoral ministry if we are going to effectively respond to the anti-doctrinal, anti-theological spirit of the age. Now, let me just tell you ahead of time of what I want to try and do today. I want to argue that the very ideas of doctrine, theology, and systematic theology are under great duress in our own time. There are many people, even people who would call themselves evangelicals, certainly Protestants of all stripes, who would call into question the legitimacy of the whole project of systematic theology and would call into question the importance of and the nature of theology and the study of doctrine in the life of the church. And so I want to address that. Second, I want to show you from Scripture that systematic theology... Is necessary, important, and in fact unavoidable. Third, I want to say what doctrine is important for. That's all I want to do with you today. Address the issue of the ideas of doctrine, theology, and systematic theology as being under great suspicion in the church today. And then demonstrate that systematic theology is a biblical discipline and that doctrine and theology is important from the scripture. And then to look at the specific question, what is doctrine important for? But let's begin with God's word. And before we read God's word, let's ask for his help and blessing. Heavenly Father, this is your word. But we need the illumination of your Holy Spirit if we are going to embrace it and respond to it in faith as we ought. Not because it is unclear, but because our hearts are sinful. And very often, even when you tell us things that are crystal clear in your word, our hearts find ways of clouding up what you have made so apparent. So by your Holy Spirit, open our eyes to behold wonderful things in your word, and we'll give you all the praise and glory for it, in Jesus' name, amen. John chapter 17, verses 13 to 17, I want to look with you to begin with at six passages in the New Testament, six passages in which we see the importance of theology of doctrine asserted by Jesus and Paul. This is all that we have time for. We could go to literally hundreds of examples in the Bible, but let's confine ourselves to these six. First, it's the high priestly prayer in John 17, and beginning in verse 13, Jesus prays like this, Now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world Your word is truth. Now in this passage, we find the Lord Jesus Christ praying to his heavenly father in anticipation of his ascension on the other side of his crucifixion and death and burial and resurrection. I am coming to you. And praying specifically that his disciples would be built up in the truth of the word of the Father that he had been speaking to them so that what? So that his joy would be fulfilled in them. Truth is for joy. Doctrine is for delight. The Lord Jesus says it. Denigrate doctrine. You're denigrating what Jesus says is necessary for joy. You're a killjoy if you're against doctrine. Because the Lord Jesus says truth is for joy. He doesn't stop there. He goes on to say that truth is for growth. Notice how he says, Lord, sanctify them by your word. Your word is truth. Notice he says, Lord, I'm not praying that you would take them out of the world. I'm praying that you would put your word in them. its Do you hear the echoes of that in Romans 12, 1 and 2? Where the Apostle Paul says, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind according to what? According to God's word. So we're in the world, but the word is in us, and therefore the world does not take us captive. The word sets us free. Truth is for joy. Truth is for growth. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 28 verses 18 to 20. It's not surprising them that just a few weeks later after Jesus has said these words in the upper room that before his ascension, he would say to his disciples in Matthew 28 verses 18 to 20. And most of you can say these verses from memory. Jesus says, To his disciples, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now, it's so fascinating. He says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go and make disciples of all the nations, And I want you to teach them a very simple gospel outline. You know, just stick to the ABCs. Nothing too complex. That's not what Jesus says. He says, I want you to teach them everything that I ever taught you. All of it. Live my truth. I want you to teach them Everything that I ever taught you, and I want you to teach them to live it out. That's the Great Commission. Not a a simple, reduced, truncated, four-point outline of the way of salvation, but everything that I ever taught you. And and, and not just teach it so that they can repeat it back by rote, but I I want to see them living it out. Now turn with me to the pastoral letters, 1 Timothy, chapter 1, verses 3 to 5. If you sat down to write the all-time best-selling book on pastoral theology in the history of the world, I promise you, you wouldn't start the way the Apostle Paul starts. The the first thing out of his mouth in the all-time most important book ever written on pastoral theology is this, 1 Timothy 1. Verse 3, I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. He says, okay, point one, pastoral theology, Timothy, tell them not to teach bad theology.
0: That's right. Point number one out of the chute in the pastoral letters has to do with telling people not to teach bad or false theology. Yep.
3: Job one. Make sure that false teachers are not harrowing the people of God with doctrine that will not lead to godliness but which will lead to vain speculation and division and ruin and destruction. I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, not to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. So here's his first point to Timothy. Don't let people teach or listen to bad theology because it'll ruin their lives because the theology that we're teaching the goal of our instruction has in view what love love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith good theology worked deep into our heart and bones by the Holy Spirit Has in view the production of a life of love. That's why I love you brothers from Sovereign Grace so much. Happy Calvinists. What a concept. (laughs) Loving the truth and loving people so much that you want them to know the truth. And you're happy about it. This is great. Go on. First Timothy one, eight to 11. whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the glorious gospel of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying that life, ethics, morality, behavior, practice is inextricably tied to doctrine. And immorality and evil deeds and behavior finds its root in the rejection of true teaching and he not only says that it's contrary to sound doctrine he indicates that the true life that is to be lived by the believer is to be in accordance with the glorious gospel of the blessed god so not only not only sound doctrine but the gospel itself is inextricably connected to the living of the Christian life. Turn forward to 1 Timothy 6, verses 2 to 4. Here again, Paul urges, teach and urge these things. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands
0: nothing. And that applies to McLaren, Tony Jones, Doug Paget. All of these yahoos who are out there teaching their own vain ideas, they're puffed up and they don't know anything.
3: Paul is even interested in retaining the patterns of words that the Lord Jesus used in his instruction passed on to Paul and which Paul is passing on to Timothy. Obviously, no one had clued Paul in to the objection that human language is incapable of conveying truth. Because he's very interested in retaining the very pattern of sound words from the Lord Jesus Christ in his teaching. But Paul, this is going to have to be translated in other languages. Don't you understand that language can't convey truth? We're all situated, therefore there's no universal truth that can be expressed in these situated languages. Paul says, retain the pattern of sound words which we've heard from Jesus. And then he says again, look at that beautiful phrase, Doctrine is unto godliness. It's the teaching which accords with godliness. The, the purpose of his doctrinal teaching is the promotion of godliness. And then in Titus 1.1, Paul barely gets out of his salutation. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect, And their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. Notice again, Paul saying that your knowledge of truth is vital to your godliness. Why should that be a surprise? Jesus has already prayed, Lord, sanctify them with truth. Your word is truth. Paul's just learned from Jesus. Truth is unto godliness. Brothers... In this anti-doctrinal, anti-theological age, I want to say this loud and clear. Truth matters. Teaching matters. Doctrine matters. Doctrinal instruction matters. Theology is for life. Theology, William Perkins says, is the science of living blessedly ever after. Try that one on the airplane. What do you do? I teach the science of living blessedly ever after. That's a conversation starter. That might get you on Oprah. (laughs) Theology is the science of living blessedly ever after, or William Ames. Theology is the doctrine or teaching of living to God. And yet, we live in an anti-doctrinal, anti-theological age. And some are saying that we need to embrace this postmodern uncertainty about truth and this postmodern reversion to doctrine by embracing postmodern uncertainty and rejecting doctrine in favor of narrative and story. And I want to suggest that that is exactly the opposite of what we need to do. I want to suggest that we need to meet this postmodern uncertainty. That we meet this postmodern reversion to truth and doctrine, that we meet this by celebrating truth, by celebrating doctrine, by unashamedly asserting and declaring theology. I want to suggest to you. Right on, right on. Amen. That your preaching, which ought to be expositional, ought also to be robustly theological. We need to be joyfully and emphatically doctrinal and theological in our ministry. I don't mean bringing the vocabulary of the seminary into your pulpit, because that's not what we need to do. But what we do need to do is to bring the substance of the Bible's theology into our preaching and bring our people into contact with it. And we need to see the value of systematic theology. And... We need to outlive, outrejoice, and outdie the critics of theology and doctrine. Now, here are my three points. The idea, the very idea of doctrine and theology, and especially systematic theology, are held in great suspicion today, even in the church. All around us, we encounter people saying, Christianity is a life, not a doctrine. Now, what is fascinating about that is, you're most likely to hear that from an evangelical today. Do you know who invented that phrase? 19th century liberals invented that phrase. But evangelicals quote it all around you today. Christianity is a life, not a doctrine. Read J. Gresson Machen's Christianity and Liberalism, and he'll he'll give you an entire chapter responding to that false assertion. All around us, we have people telling us we need to care less about theology and more about people. Deeds, not creeds is the motto of today.
0: And even within evangelical, I need to remind you, who's the current popularizer of that phrase, deeds, not creeds? Rick Warren. Why? Because he's a supreme Bible twister. If you were into creeds and sound doctrine, you'd find out, wait a second, this guy completely mangles God's word all the time.
3: There are many who are saying systematic theology is unbiblical. We need a theology that's more sensitive to narrative. Let me just give you a few examples of this. I'm not making this stuff up. This last Saturday in the Clarion Ledger, which is the only uh, daily, major daily newspaper in the state of Mississippi, published an article by Rabbi Valerie Cohen called The Dangers of Theology. Let me give you a few excerpts. Theology. What a tricky thing. A devious thing sometimes. A dangerous thing often. Perhaps that is why Jews focus so much on deed and not creed, on doing rather than believing. It doesn't mean that Jews don't have faith. Our faith is found in our actions. Now, by the way, what I'm about to read could equally have been said... By a liberal Catholic or a liberal Protestant, whether from the Episcopal Church or the Presbyterian Church or a liberal Baptist or a liberal Congregationalist or a liberal Methodist. What what she says here is actually not unique to Judaism in one sense. She says, I officiated on a funeral last Sunday, and the family wanted me to speak about why bad things happen to good people. In other words, what is the cause of evil? And that requires theology. Well, how does a Jew respond to theology? It's a tough question because there is no theology in Judaism. There are only multiple theologies. Who is to say which one is right and which one is wrong? In fact, who is to say that they can't all be right at the same time? So what do Jewish theologies say about the problem of evil besides the fact that it is a problem? Nothing satisfactory. Most Jews are way past the Deuteronomic crime and punishment theology that claims if we follow God's commandments, we'll receive rain in our lands, and if we don't, drought or some modern non-agrarian equivalent. Perhaps the more common theology comes out of the whirlwind to Job. It's beyond our comprehension. We just aren't able to understand why, and we shouldn't even try. Yet, this still seems unsatisfactory. I tend to borrow a little from one philosopher here and another one there, and then I build my own recipe for theology. Jews are allowed to do this as long as we stay within particular theological boundaries.
0: By the way, this uh, description this lady's given, this sounds like McLaren. It sounds like just a bunch of people nowadays.
3: Strict monotheism being one of them and the idea that the Messiah has not yet come being the other. My theological recipe looks a little like this. God gave us free will in the Garden of Eden in the form of human mistakes. I think that evil, better termed as bad things, can be caused by these mistakes, both intentional and unintentional. But there are also the natural bad things that happen, like tornadoes whose evidence still lies piled along our roads and stretched across our yards, whose blue roofs we thought had said goodbye after Katrina. I think God gave free will to nature as well, intentionally or unintentionally. This is the chaos that erupts when nature has free will. Theology is a tricky thing, a devious thing, a dangerous thing. That's why Jews focus more on doing. And so I return to Jewish mysticism. God needs us as partners to battle evil in this world. So for everyone who picked up a branch or helped cleaned up a yard or offered food and water or opened up your powered-up home, or picked up a chainsaw if you had the skill and courage. You sure this wasn't written by the emergence? You've been God's partner and mine. Thank you. Now reading that reminded me a little bit of the story that Mark Dever tells in the book Nine Marks of a Healthy Church in the second chapter on biblical theology. Remember Mark was leading a seminar at Southern Baptist Seminary in the bad old days, And after Mark had given an exposition of the doctrine of God, a classmate in the class objected. And he said, Mark, I like to think of God rather differently. And then he went on to paint a picture of a very friendly deity. His friend said, I like to think of God as wise, but not meddling, compassionate, but never overpowering, ever so resourceful, but never interrupting. You remember what Mark said? Thank you, Bill, for telling us so much about yourself, but we're here to talk about God. Now, it would be very easy for me to pillory and to caricature what Rabbi Cohen has said here. But I want to say this. I think I understand why Rabbi Cohen and so many other modern Jews feel this way about theology. Because they understand that truth can kill. Or at least what is purported to be truth can kill. And they have gone the route of rejecting truth. They have gone the route of reducing theology to the level of opinion in order to render it benign. You see, six million Jews lost their lives in Germany to bad theology. But they make the wrong response to this. They reject the theology, not the bad It reminds me of an encounter I had with my Russian history professor in college when he opined that the Bolsheviks were just like the Puritans, he said. I perked up. What commonality could there be between Bolsheviks and Puritans? This is it. They both believed in truth with a capital T, he said. And then he said to us a little life advice. If you ever run into someone who believes in truth with a capital T, you run as far as you possibly can away from that person. Because that kind of person could kill you. You see, it's the whole modern basis of tolerance is, is is that people that believe in absolute truth will kill you. And the only way that we can live amongst one another is to deny that there's absolute truth. That is not the basis of real toleration. By the way, Christians invented real toleration. Our Baptist brothers especially. And they did not do it by denying absolute truth. Eugene Genovese has this fascinating story in his 1992 Massey Lectures from Harvard. It's published in the book called The Southern Tradition. He says, you know, one of the fascinating things that you find in 19th century Catholics and Jews is that they reported feeling more accepted and more well-treated amongst conservative evangelicals than they did amongst liberal Protestants. And he said the reason was this. Liberal Protestants had this view. 19th century liberal Protestants had this view. You worship God in your way, and I'll worship him in mine. Meaning, we can all get along because maybe all of us are wrong, or maybe all of us are right, but it doesn't really matter after all. And yet, they weren't welcoming to Jews and to Catholics. Whereas the conservative evangelicals, Gene Genovese summarizes in this phrase, they said, no, 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 you worship God in your way, and I'll worship him in his. In other words, they were not about to build a basis for mutual life and toleration on the denial of absolute truth, but on the very foundation of absolute truth they were going to respect the image of God in people who differed with them in things that matter. And it's that kind of commitment to truth that we need to foster in this world today. And it's under duress, my friends. Well, let me give you another quote. I'm already seeing that I'm not going to get through this. Um, Many of you have read Scott McKnight and some of his remarks on the emerging church. And Scott McKnight says this about systematic theology in his article in Christianity Today on the emerging church. The emerging movement tends to be suspicious of systematic theology. Why? Not because we don't read systematics, but because the diversity of theologies alarms us. No genuine consensus has been achieved. God didn't reveal a systematic theology, but a storied narrative. And no language is capable of capturing the absolute truth, who alone is God. Now I want you to look at two parts of his argument. He says, why is it that we reject systematic theology? Because God didn't reveal a systematic theology but a storied narrative and no language is capable of capturing absolute truth, who alone is God. Now that two part argument is one, fallacious, and two, unbiblical. It is fallacious in that it asserts that the Bible is a storied narrative. The Bible is not a storied narrative. It is God's one word to his people coming to us in a library, a collection of 66 separate items written in three languages, composed and collected over a thousand years, containing a stunning variety of literary types, written history, personal memoirs, sermons, letters, hymns, prayers, propositions, both moral and theological, creeds, love poetry, philosophy, family trees, visions, tales, statistics, public laws, rubrics, rituals, inventories, and more. It is not a storied narrative. We have to put the storied narrative together. And to do that, we do it with both biblical and systematic theology. So he's just wrong about that. The Bible was not given to us as a storied narrative. And by the way, this is the other irritating thing about postmoderns: They think that this is the first generation that has ever liked stories. You know, we can't do doctrine anymore because this generation likes stories. Well, does that mean that in the 18th century, when Dad pulled up next to the bed at night, they said, No no stories tonight, Dad. We'd like case law. <laughs> People have always liked stories. That's not something new. Here's the second part of this problem. The objection that language is not capable of conveying absolute truth about God is not an objection that you can find in the pages of Scripture. It comes from an alien philosophical origin. That doesn't mean that Scripture does not assert, as it most certainly does, the omnipotence of God and the infinity of God and the eternality of God and the otherness of God. But you don't get into Genesis 2 and have Adam wondering if he can have a conversation with God. Or if he can understand the command that God has given him, he clearly can. And even after the fall, God talks to us. And he assumes that we can understand him. In fact, he'll say through Moses to his people, I've not told you something that's high above the heavens. I've come right up to you and whispered it in your ear. This is, this is understandable. I mean, I'm not asking you to scale mountains and cross rivers to understand what I'm saying to you. It's clear. You see, the objection that language is not capable of conveying absolute truth is not an angst derived from the pages of Scripture. It comes from an alien philosophical mindset manifest in both medieval nominalism and in post-Kantian philosophy. The apostles, friends, were ready to expel people from the church over language. Jesus had a real body was not a negotiable in the Apostle John's category of teaching. But even folks closer to us who ought to know better have not been helpful to us in this area, especially in the relationship between systematic theology and biblical theology. Our friend Bruce Waltke, whose writings I've been so helped by over the years and his massive Old Testament theology is well worth all of you reading, says this, in his view, the church is best served when biblical theologians work in conversation with orthodox systematic theology regarding the Bible as the foundation and boundary in matters deciding the basis, goal, and methodology for biblical theology. Through this interpenetration of the two disciplines, we will be better able to present the theological power and religious appeal of biblical concepts. Amen. But then he goes on to say this. Systematic or dogmatic theologians present the Christian message to the contemporary world. They draw the impetus for organizing this message from outside the Old Testament. John Calvin, in his justly famous Institutes of the Christian Religion, organized his material along four divisions of the Apostles' Creed. Philip Melanchthon organized his theology around one book, Romans. In the 17th century, theologians typically employed philosophical categories derived from Greek thought, like Bibliology, harmartiology, pneumatology, and so on. Biblical theologians differ from dogmaticians in three ways. First, biblical theologians primarily think as exegetes, not as logicians. Secondly, they derive their organizational principle from the Bible blocks of writings themselves, rather than from factors external to the text. And third, their thinking is diachronic. That is, they track the development of theological themes in various blocks of writings. Systematic theologians think more synchronically. That is, they invest their energies on the church's doctrines, not on the development of religious ideas within the Bible. Not helpful. It is true, biblical theology studies the history of redemption diachronically across the progression of time, looking at the progress and development of doctrine. And systematic theology studies the Bible synchronically. That is, it asks, what does the whole Bible teach about this? And pastors do systematic theology all the time. When a congregation member comes up to you and wants you to explain, pastor, tell me. What does the Bible say about angels? Your congregation member doesn't want a storied narrative. Your congregation member wants a brief, biblical summarization, which takes into account the shape of all the teaching of Scripture on that particular topic. That's what systematic theology does. You do it all the time. So when your congregation member comes up to you and says, Pastor, What does the Bible teach about the assurance of salvation? Or, pastor, what does the Bible say about what happens to us when we die? Your answer is indebted to systematic theology. And you are doing systematic theology when you ask and answer those kinds of questions. Systematic theology answers the question, what does the whole Bible teach us today about X? Doctrine is what the whole Bible teaches about a particular topic. Systematic theology is the attempt to take care, to look carefully at what the Bible teaches about all doctrines and summarize them helpfully and in a biblical shape. Well, this address, and that was all point one, This address aims to defend the vital place of doctrine, theology, and indeed systematic theology in the Christian life and ministry. It's impossible for us to avoid theology and doctrine. Did you notice that even Rabbi Cohen, who wanted to deny doctrine as dangerous, turned around and started doing what? Giving you doctrine and theology. It was just the creation of our own mind, however.
0: Same thing with Brian McLaren, the emergence, and those who talk about deeds and not creeds. They're giving you doctrine and theology, even while they're bashing doctrine and theology. But they're not giving you biblical theology. They're giving you the ravings of their own crazed minds. Their ego has become God, and they want you to follow the doctrine they've created. Good point
3: it wasn't based on scripture it's impossible to avoid theology and doctrine everyone is a theologian everyone has doctrine the only questions are are you a good theologian or a bad theologian and is your doctrine right or wrong nobody can avoid theology and doctrine and in fact systematic theology is unavoidable and necessary You cannot not do systematic theology. The Bible itself provides us with examples of systematic theology. If somebody tells you that they don't believe in systematic theology, watch out. They're about to slide it under the door without you looking. You can't not do systematic theology. Indeed, systematic theology is good for us, it brings glory to God, it makes our lives better. The Bible itself provides us with examples of it. Let me ask you to turn in your Bibles. Let me just rifle through some examples quickly. Jesus speaking to the disciples on the road to Emmaus in Luke chapter 24 verses 25 to 27. Very often we will use this passage to support the concept or the idea or the discipline of biblical theology. That's not an illegitimate application of the passage, but I want to draw your attention to what Luke says. Luke twenty-four, twenty-five to 27. And he said to them, this is Jesus speaking, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures. Listen closely the things concerning himself. Question. What does he show them from all the scriptures? Not the storied narrative of redemptive history but himself. In other words, this study was topical and systematic and it was about the person and work of the Messiah and the identity of his person the focus is on the person and work of Christ here biblical theology no doubt was going along but in the end this is systematic theology that's being done it's on the topic of the person and work of Christ that this conversation that begins with him appealing to Moses and through all the scripture then look at Acts chapter 18 Apollos of Alexandria does the same thing, Acts 18, 27 and 28. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that Christ was Jesus, that the Christ was Jesus. Let me just stop right there and comment on the fact that Luke will draw attention to the fact that polemics, the refutation of false teaching, is good for Christians. Did you catch that? He says, he greatly helped those who grace, through grace had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public. Do you ever think of that? That refutation of false doctrine encourages the brethren? That's what he says. But here's what I want you to see in the passage. What Apollos does is the same thing that Jesus had done in Luke 24. It's a systematic study of the Bible's teaching on the Messiahship of Christ. It's the topic of the Messiahship of Christ. By the way, the early church built a catena of key passages from the Old Testament, which they began to call in the second century the demonstratia evangelical, the demonstration of the gospel. And they taught it to Christians so that they would be ready to talk about Jesus from the Old Testament. But it was a systematic study of the person of Christ from the Old Testament. Then turn to Acts 17, verses 2 and 3. Paul went in, as was his custom, on three Sabbath days, and he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. Here's Paul doing the same thing. Searching the scriptures on the topic of the person and work of Christ and teaching them systematic theology about Jesus from the Old Testament. Now, I don't have time to go to Romans, which is organized not redemptively, not redemptive historically but systematically I don't have time to go to Hebrews 1 which is all about the divine sonship of Christ or to Hebrews 11 which is about the nature of true faith all of these are examples of the New Testament doing systematic theology systematic theology is not the product of alien philosophical forms creeping into our mindset it's seen plainly on the pages of scripture third and finally what is doctrine important for? What is doctrine important for? God's glory, assurance, life, marriage, joy. You don't have time for me to go on like I want to go on. Open your Bibles again and look at Romans 11. Have you ever wondered why Romans 11, 33 to 36 follows verse 32? Remember what he says in verse 32? For God is consigned all to disobedience, that he may have mercy on all. Now that's not a verse that you're looking to say, can I get an amen? He's consigned all to disobedience. This is a deep, deep thing. But what does Paul say? Oh, the depth of the riches. And wisdom, knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. In other words, even the doctrine of preterition is a matter of the glory of God. It's stunning. My son was playing in the driveway of our house a few years ago on a California chariot, which is a sort of like a scooter with two slats. Now, we memorized the children's catechism in the Presbyterian Church. The first three questions of which are, who made you, God? What else did God make, all things? Why did God make you and everything else for his own glory? We've been working on this for a while. My son and my daughter were out in the driveway, and my son comes up to me and he says, Dad, why did God make this California chariot? And my daughter immediately interrupted and he said, She said, Jennings, God didn't make that California chariot. God made the people that made that California chariot. My son rolled his eyes like, Thank you for that nuance and clarification, sis, and turned right back to me and he said, Dad, why? Did God make California chariots? I said, I don't know, Jennings. I guess because he wanted little guys like you to have fun. And he said, No, Dad, for his own glory. <laughs> he was right. I was wrong. Doctrine is for God's glory, doctrine's for our assurance. Turn to John 15. Again, in the upper room. Jesus in John 15:15 15, 15 says no longer do I call you servants for the servant does not know what his master is doing but I have called you friends for all that I have heard from my father I have made known to you and then he says those glorious words you did not choose me but I chose you Now my friends why was it so important for Jesus to teach his disciples about election in the upper room, that he had chosen them and not they him. Because Matthew tells us they're all going to abandon him that night. And if they are going to have one shred of assurance left to them, it is not going to be based on the fact that they have chosen him. Because everything about their actions will be screaming to their hearts and consciences that they have no part of him unless they hear the Master say, Dear child, dear friend, I knew everything in you, and I chose you anyway. Doctrine is for assurance. Doctrine is for marriage. Turn with me to Ephesians 5, verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her Now, in what I'm about to say, I do not want to take away anything from what Dr. Sproul and Dr. Moeller and others will do with the glorious doctrine of the atoning work of our Lord Jesus Christ. That work is first and foremost a testimony to the unique, unrepeated and unrepeatable work of the Lord Jesus Christ, which he did for us and which we have absolutely no part of. It is totally outside of us. We contributed nothing to it, and we benefit everything from it. But, isn't it interesting that the New Testament will point to the atoning work of Christ, and it will draw ethical obligations for us from it. Look at, look at Ephesians 5.25. Husbands, love your wives As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Do you hear what Paul is saying? He's saying, husbands, every every time you hear John Piper or R.C. Sproul or Al Mohler preaching on the atoning work of Christ, you do this first. You give glory to Christ who paid for all your sins through the shedding of his own blood and you contributed nothing to it. But here's the next thing. You look up at your Lord Jesus and you learn how you're supposed to love your wife. You see what he's saying here? Love your wife in light of the doctrine of the atonement. That's what Paul's saying here. The atonement informs your love for your wife. You say to me, but she has broken my heart. did not the church break her Lord's heart and he loved her unto death you love her like Christ loved the church in his giving up of himself for her in his atoning death that's how you love her doctrine is about marriage but doctrine is about joy. I promise I'm about finished, Matt. Philippians 3, one. Paul, it's a fascinating way Paul opens this chapter. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. Now, as you know, after saying, finally, my brothers, Paul goes on for two more chapters. Now, you're saying to yourself, I recognize this. I've said and in conclusion and 35 minutes later and 4 points later I'm finally getting to the conclusion and New Testament scholars and commentators go bananas about this passage because if you look at the end of Philippians 2 he starts doing what he does in his other letters he starts giving commendations and then you know in his other letters he generally then starts to give some final words of exhortation and he closes but here he says and finally and then suddenly We get this supreme doctrinal exposition from 1b to at least verse 11. What is going on here? Rejoice in the Lord. And then suddenly, doctrine. Totally unrelated. So many of the liberal critical scholars say that this must have been written by somebody else other than the Apostle Paul. And added in later. It's totally unrelated. Oh, contraire. Because what's his great message in 1b through 11? Put no confidence in the flesh. Put put all your hope in the righteousness of Christ, which is by faith. And I long to be found in him, wrapped with a righteousness not of my own. And I long to die with him and share the fellowship of his suffering so that I might benefit from his death. And I long to be raised in glory with him in the resurrection. The whole point of the passage is that the reason for Paul's joy is that he has no confidence in the flesh and all the confidence in Christ. And he works through justification and sanctification and glorification. Why? Because doctrine is for joy. Oh, my brothers, don't starve your sheep because they need doctrine for God's glory and for their assurance and for the Christian life and for marriage and for joy. Yep. Amen. Truth matters. Doctrine matters. Theology is for life. Let's pray. Lord God. bless your word
0: in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You won't hear that one uh, at any emergent cohort. You probably won't hear that one at any seeker driven churches. Why? Because uh, they aren't into doctrine and theology. They want to They have turned Christianity into least common denominator stuff, and it's all about deeds, not creeds. But that's not biblical. What Ligon Duncan here proclaimed is biblical truth. Don't believe him? Test what he said against God's word. It's why we do what we do here at Fighting for the Faith, to proclaim... Christ and Him crucified for our sins to defend sound biblical doctrine and to point out the errors in, and the Bible twisting and the false doctrine of people who are in the church who are being tolerated who shouldn't be tolerated. People who are teaching who shouldn't be teaching. They shouldn't be leading your Bible study. They shouldn't be teaching your dog the Bible. Because they're teaching false doctrine. I need to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener supported radio. That means we depend upon your generous contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you. Would you partner with us? You can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com, and clicking on one of our friendly yellow buttons there. We have one that says, Join our crew. Sounds ominous. It's only $6.95, by the way, to join our crew. $6.95 a month automatically comes out of your account, and it goes to support the worldwide outreach of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And when you join, you also get access to our Pirate Cove, a growing treasure trove of theological resources designed to help you go deeper in God's Word, Christ-centered theology and sound doctrine, and Christ-centered apologetics. Good stuff, and that's our way of saying thank you for joining our crew. And, of course, if you'd like to donate... Uh, the amount of your choosing, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button. It allows you to send in your contribution securely online right there on our we- on a webpage. Or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send that along to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. All right, so what would you think of today's edition of Fighting for the Faith? I would love to get your feedback, and I value it. You can email me. My email address is talkback@fightingforthefaith.com. That's talkback@fightingforthefaith.com. Or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash piratechristian. Or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. Until tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and the mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen.